Well, friends, if we have not met, my name is Adam, and it really is one of the best things about my life to be one of the pastors here. Back in March, I was talking to my good friend Mitch, the t-shirt guy, and he said, my fellow pastor here, and, and he said something that I've thought a lot about since. We were talking about our church and kind of emerging from the pandemic and the two years of uh, just kind of tough times. And he said this, I don't think we need to write the ship but we need to set the sail. I thought, I'm going to use that in a sermon. <laughs> he was right. When I first became a pastor here in 2019, we had some of these kind of listening conversations and got to meet a bunch of folks, and people would ask me often, well, pastor, what's your vision for the church? And I'd say, ah, ask me in a year, right, because I wanted to get to know our folks in, in our community and in, in our church. Well, it turns out in that next year, a lot happened. And, and I'm not proud to say this, uh, but my vision became consumed simply with survival. I was trying to survive. I worried a lot. I worried about our staff and if, if uh, giving would continue to support our staff. I worried about losing people. Worried about the health of, of our congregation, our uh, long-time members, let's say. I wish I could sit here and tell you, I was so confident in my faith that every day I just repeated the words of Jesus Christ. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Well, I wasted a lot of hours worrying. And it was all made foolish because of God's faithfulness to our church and because of your faithfulness at our church through all that mess. And so friends, the, the time for a vision beyond survival is come. Like any institution whose mission is its own continuing existence is not compelling and that falls short of the call that God has for God's people. And so I'm excited to share with you the, the answer to the question, three years in the making, what's the vision for the church? Now, I'm not going to be able to pack all of this in to one sermon slot. You can thank me for that. Uh, and so I do want to let you know we're going to be unrolling this thing uh, uh, over a period of time. Uh, but it's not a secret. And so uh, my boy Keith made us a little web page here. If you go to carney.church slash rvision, you can download kind of this, this PDF doc, uh, a bit of an illustration of, of what we want to be doing, where we believe God's calling us. We have some paper copies out at the welcome desk if you'd like to, to grab those after service. So friends, let's pray. God, we thank you for this time and place that you have put us in. We thank you for this community of faith. God, may we be challenged and encouraged from the reading of your word and your presence together. Amen. So last week, you may have seen a viral video uh, that, that, took that went crazy and took off uh, it was about two little league teams and what happened after a batter got struck by a pitch. Check it out. Oh, look out. Oh, my gosh. That's awesome. Tough kid right there. Hey, Jarvis, it hit his helmet. 
So this is really cool because as a pitcher, Bubs looks shaken up right now because of what he did. And look at Zay Jarvis. This is such great sportsmanship. He wants him to know that it's okay, that he'll be fine. Hey, Bob. Look, look at me. Look at me. You're all right. Amazing. You're all right. Look at me. Hey, look. Look. What a stud right there. Zay Jarvis. I thought this video was stirring for a couple reasons. Did you see the catcher kind of encouraging the batter on his way to the base? Uh, the crowd's embrace of the moment. But why was it that people in the stands were actually weeping? This was an unlikely scenario. Do you, do you notice where the teams were from? Texas and Oklahoma. Anybody from Texas or Oklahoma? Okay, got a couple. So you've heard of the Red River rivalry. That's a huge interstate rivalry. They're on opposing teams. In sports, we want to defeat our opponents, not hug them. We don't hug Josh Allen. <laughs> but despite all the factors on paper that would lead those two young men to be adversaries, there was this moment of humanity that, that transcended all of that. There were just two young men playing a game. They weren't opposing players. One young man comforting the other. The one who was injured comforting the one who had inadvertently struck him with the ball. This video is so touching because it's so unlikely. A moment of compassion in an arena of competition. Those ball players made an impression because our society is not marked by compassion. And it's touching, especially as adults, when we see two kids that get it. Oh, that's right. We are an increasingly polarized and suspicious society. There's a lot of distrust among our fellow Americans. You know, there was a time when you might have wondered what your neighbor down the street or someone you worked with or a colleague. There was a time when you might have wondered what they thought about X, Y, or Z topic. But now we all have a platform to let the world know exactly how we feel. In 2022... There's a quote famously misattributed to Mark Twain. You may have heard it. Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. We've got a lot of that going on. And the people said, Amen. Amen. This feeling of division in American culture, it can actually be measured. In 2019, now this was three years ago, the Pew Research Center released a report about the trust and distrust status in America. They said 71% of Americans think interpersonal confidence has worsened the past 20 years. We are less and less likely confident in one another as Americans. Among the many factors on the minds of the survey respondents, they cite social and policy woes, such as a perception that Americans are increasingly living with loneliness and isolation, as well as the nation's continuing struggles with race relations, crime, and religion versus secularism. They also call out others' personal traits. So here's how we, what we think of one another. Laziness, greed, and dishonesty. Additionally, a share of the public thinks toxic national politics and polarization have taken their toll on the way Americans think of each other. We live in an age where in response to distrusting those we disagree with, we can actually filter out our news, music, entertainment, and even who we associate with based on our preferences. We can just kind of form our little tribe 
and stick with those that agree with us and look like us. A society marked by suspicion and division is not a new phenomenon. In the first century where where Jesus lived, you had the people of Israel who had been waiting thousands of years for a Messiah. That's a Hebrew word that means anointed one. And this Messiah was promised to come and restore the greatness of the kingdom of Israel. The people of Israel's ancestral home had been occupied by a long line of world powers, and the latest of which was the Romans. And so many were expecting God's chosen Messiah to come overthrow the Romans and begin a new kingdom. Several of those people were among Jesus' disciples. That's what they expected of Jesus. And so in the midst of social tensions, Jesus brought together a strange variety of individuals that does not make sense on paper. This is from Mark chapter 3. Mark is one of the four gospels or biographies of Jesus. Gospel is a word that simply means good news. And so Mark tells us about the good news of Jesus' life his teachings, his death, and his resurrection. Here's what it says. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And I have just demonstrated for you that if you read something quickly and confidently, people will assume that you are legitimate. That's, that's a free one from me. Andrew, excuse me, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So Jesus didn't assemble this group at random. He called to them, he called to him, those he wanted. Jesus had a strategy. Some of the details he gives us, gives us a glimpse into the type of relationship Jesus had with these people. Now, when I was in elementary school, my name is Adam Musto. The kids called me Adam Mustard. And to this day, I'm, I'm so triggered, I can't even eat mustard. I don't even, I don't even buy it. It's true. The nicknames that you like it it demonstrates a close relationship with people. So Jesus gave some of his disciples nicknames. He nicknamed Simon Peter, or in Greek, Petrus, which means the rock. In James of John, he nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, which is very like WWF tag team. I just love it. (laughs) The Sons of Thunder. Amazing. This is how close Jesus was with these people. And they weren't just anybody. He handpicked them, which when we examine the details... I find this incredibly convicting, who Jesus surrounded himself with. Now, there's several of the names in this list. This, by the way, in Mark 3 is one of the few times we see all 12 disciples listed together. And some of these names we don't hear much about much more after this. Philip, Bartholomew, one of the James, Thaddeus, and Andrew, they show up in a few spots in the New Testament. But what Scripture tells us about the other disciples gives us insight into the intent of Jesus and a blueprint for all those who would follow him. Andrew and Peter, the rock, also called Simon, we know they were fishermen. And so were James and John, the sons of thunder. If you were thinking about getting a tattoo, I might, I might suggest that one. They were called the sons of thunder for their fiery personalities. These four apostles were people who had mastered a trade and made their living as laborers. So I imagine it would have been a little awkward when Jesus invites Matthew the tax collector to be a disciple. 
a tax collector who worked for the Romans and made their living, their salary was whatever taxes they could collect on top of what they owed the Romans. Romans taxed laborers like fishermen. Then add to the mix Simon the Zealot. Some translations use the word cannonian. The Greek is cannonoi, and it means zealot or Jewish nationalist. This could mean someone who was very strict about observing Jewish law, or it can mean someone who dedicated their life to overthrowing the Roman occupation. And so Simon the Zealot is right next to Matthew, the former Roman operative. So you have a fisherman and a zealot in the same close circle as a Roman tax collector. Lastly, and I guess leastly, we get Judas Iscariot. Now some, some scholars think that the word Iscariot, it wasn't like his last name. It, it might have signified where he was from geographically or others speculate that Iscariot was a form of Sakari. Sakari. Hold up, back it up one. This was a secret Jewish order of a... I wanted to give the knife its due. The Sakari was a small bladed knife. And it was a secret order of Jewish assassins that they would carry these small knives around and offer Roman if they had the chance. Some people think Judas might have been one of those people. Now, whether or not that's true, we can't say for certain. What we do know for certain is that Jesus invited his betrayer into his inner circle. I mean, we can kind of just, oh yeah, we got Judas. It's on his business card, the one who betrayed him, right, like, now, we need, we need to let that sink in from time to time. So, here we go. These are the people that Jesus put in his circle. These are the ones he called to himself, the ones he chose and appointed to eventually carry on his work. Laborers, tax collectors, hotheads, and political revolutionaries. That's a lot to think about from a list of names. Friends, Jesus drew to himself a broad circle of people that does not make sense according to the world. Can we? This is the essence, I believe, of what it means to be a Methodist. There's a lot of debates in our world and, and within kind of different streams of Christianity. And some of those debates, they really center around it's either this or that. That's called a false duality. That it's one or the other, either this or that. Is faith primarily about individual salvation or is it about societal transformation? One or the other. For Methodist founder John Wesley, the answer to that question would be, Yes, that it's about both. Our faith involves both inward and outward transformation. And I believe the Methodist tradition equips us well in a world that seeks extremity and polarity, that tries to draw people to opposite sides. This quality of Methodist theology is what Paul Wesley Chilcote calls a conjunctive faith. Now you might've heard of conjunctivitis. I think that's bad. This is good. It's joining things together. And friends, it may just be the medicine that our world desperately needs. In his book, Recapturing the Wesley's Vision, Chilcote says, Methodist theology attempts to find a third alternative to opposing points of view that often tear people apart. Don't we need it? Don't we need it? This does not mean that you compromise the truth in order to walk an easier middle ground that is offensive to none. That's important. It means holding on to the truth you find on the left hand and the right. This Wesleyan method can be called conjunctive because it seeks to join things together rather than permitting them to be pulled apart.
On July 23rd, our leadership team gathered for a yearly retreat. And as part of our prayerful preparation, we considered two main things, two key questions. What's our local predicament? What, are, what specific problems can we identify in Kearney, in our corner of Clay County? And then what is a church is our collective potential? How has God equipped us to respond to these problems? The common threads that we shared began to emerge. That Kearney is a growing community. It's changing. I believe it's the fourth fastest growing city in Missouri. We know that people want to belong to something. We got lots of folks moving in and they haven't, they haven't been a part of this community forever. I've been one of those people. We also detected increasing political conflict and we acknowledged our city's uh, long culture of racial hostility. When we thought about our church's ability to affect our community, we cited our deep connections in Kearney. This church goes back over 150 years. We celebrated our church's focus on service and that we're not perfect, but we aim to be a place where people can belong, no matter who they are. And when we looked around, it struck us that our church is multi-generational. Our church has multiple worship styles. Our church has people from all over the socioeconomic spectrum. And our church is home to people that are of different minds when it comes to politics and even aspects of theology. Now, all this, of course, is when we're at our best. But friends, on paper, not a lot of that makes sense. It is not the way of the world. It flies in the face of the Pew Research Report and the vitriol we see on social media and in our national, state, and local politics. Our church can be a place where all of these differences are transcended because our highest allegiance belongs to Jesus Christ. That, to me, sounds like Mark 3. That's what we're aiming for. Our vision is patterned after Jesus himself, who brought people together which defied the wisdom of the world. So, pastor, what's the vision for the church? Where do we feel God leading us? Here we go. A community of unlikely friends following Jesus together. In a polemic world filled with tension, our church can specialize in creating a rare place where relationships are formed that don't make sense on paper according to the world. I want to tell you about my friend Janelle. She's a part of our church. She's going to be a fifth grader next year. You can see she has a lot of amazing hobbies, including karate. Our families are good friends, and Janelle's mom just happened to mention to me that she was interested in, in learning how to knit and learning how to crochet. And I said, well, I think we got a group at church that does that. Get this. Janelle shows up to Crochet Club on Saturday at our church and strikes up an unlikely friendship with my girl, Velda McMorris. I mean, someone tell me where on the planet something like this would happen, an unlikely friendship beyond the church. And so now Velda has taught Janelle how to knit, and they become buds. On, on paper, this makes zero sense. But we have a community of unlikely friends who follow Jesus together. Now, I've already hit you with the baseball players hugging each other, and now a fifth grader learns to crochet. I, I, I want to be very clear that this is much more than sentimentality. Dustin, our youth director, will tell you, he's going to lead a class on it this fall, that students need six caring adults in their lives who can encourage them in their faith. Six non-parental adults who can encourage them in their faith. And statistically, when that is happening, a high schooler's faith 
is much more likely to stick beyond high school. And so Velda ain't just a crochet coach. She's somebody in Janelle's corner. And that as Janelle grows and has more grown-up problems, she can turn to Velda. That's the kind of things we can foster at our church. This concept of unlikely friendships in the pattern of Jesus, it's not a fully realized one in our church. It's an aspirational one. I don't know how to say this. I'm just going to give you a couple sentences of straight talk here, okay? If I wasn't white and I came in and heard the preacher talking about how wonderfully diverse our church was, I would either laugh or maybe leave. Now, let me also say very plainly, there's lots of ways to categorize diversity, and one of those is, is describing data population and demographics. So I want to show you some slides from the U.S. Census report. As of July 1st, 2021, Carney's population is 10,741. These looked a lot bigger on my computer screen before I put them up here. Carney's population is 90.2% white, 8.9% Hispanic, 5.5% two or more races, and 0.3% black. Now again, let me say very plainly, white folks can't help that we're white. It's simply a fact our town is over 90% white. That's nobody's fault. Nothing we can do about that. We can't help that. But what we can help is the culture in our community. So when folks who aren't white encounter racism and threats and hostility that makes the news, it seems like, annually, when that's the reputation that our community has nationally, why would people want to move here if that's them? I think the good news is We've got between 10 and 11,000 people in Kearney. If you look at our Christmas and Easter numbers, our church engages with around 1,000 of them. Now, not all of those folks are from Kearney proper, but certainly in this corner of Clay County. Imagine the influence that 1,000 people can have in a community of 11,000. I think we have incredible potential. We can have an impact on changing the culture in and around Kearney in our schools, in our workplaces, in restaurants, in gas stations, in neighborhood pools, and text message threads. That as a result of following Jesus, we would be like him and bring different people of wildly various backgrounds and perspectives together. First United Methodist Church, a community of unlikely friends following Jesus together. Now, I understand that with any vision, there could be potential criticism. Our church is not bowing to a liberal agenda or a conservative agenda. Our church is bowing to Jesus and trying to let Jesus set the agenda. Jesus said, if you greet only your own people, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the pagans do that. I don't want to be a pastor to only one type of person or only people who belong to the same political party. I want to be a pastor at a church that goes against the wisdom of the world. Jesus does not call us to be a church that retreats to the safety of the homogenous, where we're all the same. That's not who he called to himself. That's not who he chose to be his disciples. John Stewart, comedian, Host of The Daily Show for a long time. 
He once described the Methodist Church as the University of Phoenix of religions. <laughs> Meaning, we'll take anybody. If someone wants to criticize that approach, good, good. I'll read and politely respond to all the emails. So if you want to criticize that approach, good. The same criticism was lobbed at Jesus by the Pharisees who thought they were so holy that associating with those people was beneath them. So let's all take a moment and fill in the blank in our minds on who those people can be to us. When the Pharisees were within earshot of Jesus in order to embarrass him, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And in another translation, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Friends, you don't get crucified because you hung out with all the right people. Jesus made unlikely friends. Jesus said in John 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. This is the most unlikely friendship of all. That the immortal son of God would volunteer to be made mortal like us. That the sinless savior would befriend sinful people and die on our behalf. The most unlikely friendship is that Jesus would call us to himself. Over and above all that makes us different, we are all his. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time to be in your presence. We thank you for this community of faith. God, would you help us live into this vision? We have an amazing collection of people that you have brought to our church. Help us not to, to draw a closed circle and to huddle up in our tribes of people who look or think or believe just the same way we do. God, help us follow the pattern of Jesus who called all kind of folks to himself. God, help us to go against the pattern of the world, to swim upstream and to be a people who display what it means to be unlikely friends. God, we're setting our sail and trying to chart the course where you're calling us to follow you. Help us to have the commitment and the courage to stay on course as we seek to follow your call. Amen.